Please turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. So far, I hope um, and pray that this book has been beneficial to you as it has uh, to me in my own life and in my outlooks on things that go on in life. Uh, this, This evening, we are going over a portion of this book that is very applicable to our own day, that helps us really to navigate through some very difficult waters. Uh, Specifically, it addresses how the people of God are to navigate uh, through the political climate of the day. This gives us some practical applications of how we are to be, conduct ourselves. How do you you navigate uh, not only the political climate, but how do you navigate... Uh, whenever your particular employer is making questionable decisions that are maybe immoral. What do you do? How do you respond? How do you respond as one theologian, David Wells, in his book, God in the Wasteland, says, how do you respond when our culture makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange? Well, that's where Solomon is coming in tonight of how to navigate through the darkness in such a way that God is honored in our conduct and in our speech. God's word is upheld, applied, and yet we are able to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And how do we do that? Well, as Solomon is going into this passage here, it's through wisdom. It's through the wisdom of God. That we are able to, to get through those trying times and political situations that we may find ourselves in. Uh, and, and it really, we're going over verses 1 through 15, but this, this whole section here really is, is founded upon verse 1 of wisdom, of having wisdom. And that benefit of having the wisdom is what guides us through uh, the rest of the things that Solomon is going to speak of, not only of the political climate itself, but how do you view the injustices of the day? How do you view when uh, the, the hypocrites, for example, are praised among the people? How do you respond to that? You use wisdom. And you pray for wisdom. You pray, as James says, and you ask, and, and you, you ask the Lord who gives generously this wisdom on how to to work through these things in such a way that reproach is not brought upon the name of the Lord, that we're not being yes people. We're not just agreeing with everything just to avoid conflict. There's, there's nothing helpful about being a, a yes man or a yes woman. But how do we do so in a way God is honored, God's standard is kept, and we don't bring reproach upon him? That's where Solomon's coming in tonight. And so I pray that this particular passage is very beneficial to you and very helpful to you, especially in our own day where there was so much that goes on and so many questionable decisions that are made, things that are uh, upheld and viewed as, as right when they are uh, blatantly against the law of God. 
Perhaps these verses here will help us on how to navigate through those things. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 to 15 of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Verse 1. Who is like the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, What are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. So then, I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This, too, is futility. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God who fear him openly. For it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Therefore, excuse me, there is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. So I commended pleasure. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry And this will stand by him and his tolls throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. Let's pray. Holy Father, we again come before you and we ask that the Holy Spirit, whom you have granted to your people, will guide us through this passage, will give us understanding as best as we can, and will give us the power to apply it to our lives that we would know what is the right course of action in a situation. We want to honor you. We want to uphold your law, your standard. We want to tell others of you. We do not want to cower to the authorities when they are being immoral, but we do want to be a benefit to others. Father, help us this evening as we work our way through this passage. And once again, lift our countenance up to you. Let us see you as the sovereign king who rules over the affairs of men. Let this give us delight tonight and encouragement in the days ahead. We love you. We thank you for all things in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we ask and pray these things. And all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated.
So there is a lot here in these verses. But again, just by reading through them, and perhaps you've already read a, perhaps a portion of it, knowing that we are going through this book, you know what's coming next, you know the next chapter is coming, maybe you've already looked into it. There is uh, some very uh, grand wisdom here, especially considering the day in which we live. There is great turmoil among uh, the people in our nation, and it's almost as if you, know, you, you do have a line drawn in the sand, uh, over many issues, and there are indeed issues that are worth dying on that hill for. So what do we do? How is God honored in the way that things are handled today, especially when you have the two constantly bickering, never being able to work through anything? It's constantly slinging mud from one side to the other, and because the political people do it, the adherence of whoever follows whatever party is doing the same thing. How then can, can we honor the Lord through our dialogue with others? How can we honor the Lord if we are in situations in which maybe our employer or maybe others who are in the, the political realm themselves uh, are trying to, to work their way through situations and, and maybe immoral decisions? What what happens there? And the first thing that we need to look at that's going to guide through all of this is the need for wisdom. You must have wisdom. And not just any wisdom. This is speaking of the wisdom of God. And understand this, that if you are a child of God, and the scriptures are telling us that if you, any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously. What kind of wisdom are we referring to here but the wisdom of God? And since you've been given that mind of Christ and this Holy Spirit of God in you, you are able, enabled by him in order to receive that particular wisdom and by his power to apply it to your life. So when you seek after wisdom, you're seeking it from the word of God. You're praying to the Lord to help you retain what you learn and to apply what you learn in the given situations that you find yourself. And this blessing is for all the people of God to have the wisdom of God because all of us in Christ have been given the mind of Christ. You must seek after wisdom. And that entails reading, learning, studying what does God's word say on this particular issue? What does it say on this particular issue? Let me learn these because these may be some of the hot topics today. I need to know how to navigate through this. Because I don't want to get into a situation where I'm answering a fool according to his folly and I'm being just like him. I want to get into a situation in which I'm able to give a reasonable answer for the hope that is within us with meekness and fear and that God would be honored. So it must be wisdom. And that's where, in this particular passage of Scripture, verse 1 here, this is where he's really highlighting wisdom. One writer says this, uh, this text highlights the way in which wisdom changes a person to make them more willing to extend grace and, and mercy to others, which occurs as one acknowledges the grace one has received. Where is the wise man who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. It's all hinging on wisdom. Wisdom is good. Wisdom is worth being sought after. In fact, as we've been talking about, this whole book has been nothing but wisdom. 
Wisdom from God gives true insight into reality. And that's why he's praising this. He's highlighting this. Where is the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a matter? Who knows how to understand reality as it is? It seems as if perhaps wisdom is hard to come by. And apart from the Lord, indeed it is. A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. This is very important to understand this particular phrase. Listen again. A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. Now what is in view? The stern faces that he's referring to here, uh, most likely speaking of cruel hearts that show no mercy and that extend no grace and not willing to speak to any but already have their ideas set in stone. And with any conflicts that come their way, it's no grace, no mercy, and going on the attack. And that's what we normally see. How often... Do we see people responding by their emotions rather than having a reasonable argument? You know, it's, it's so funny to me at times when you, when you see Congress, you know, gather together and they're discussing a particular matter. It's if who, it doesn't matter if they're Republican or Democrat. They say the same thing. Well, our colleagues on the left, our colleagues on the right is how it usually starts Uh, say that we believe blah, 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 and exactly what they say is nothing but an insult to whoever it is. And then the next person gets up. Well, our colleagues on the left, yep, yep, yep. And it just goes back and forth, back and forth. There's nothing, nothing being accomplished here except giving everybody two minutes to insult the other guy. Why? Because they're responding with their emotions rather than trying to give a reasonable argument about whatever the matter is. Now, granted, sometimes when you give a reasonable argument, as some have, they're not going to receive it often. But nonetheless, it must be that you keep your emotions in check and that you respond accordingly. And how can you do that? Well, that's what he's saying in the latter part of verse 1. A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. As you come to understand the reality of God's creation, of life, of of, of everything that's going on in the world, and again, we're not going to know the intricacies of everything, but you can have a reasonable understanding and a reasonable worldview which comports with what reality is through the Christian faith. And having that, having a true insight into God's reality, changes your stern face to be more of extending grace and extending mercy to those who are not like you, to those who would oppose you. How do you do that? Have you ever uh, come in between two particular friends that were arguing or maybe they're, they're at odds with one another over whatever it is. And you come to be the mediator. Well, how do you do that? You go to the one. Well, what's going on here? Well, this is this and they said this and whatever. And you're going into your mind and you're putting yourself in their shoes and you're saying, okay, 
if I was in their shoes and I heard this particular thing here, then this is what I would think as well. I would react the same way. Let me go talk to the other guy. Then you go to the other and they say, well, I heard this or they said this or whatever. And so you're thinking, okay, well, he's thinking it this way because maybe this was said. Okay, I understand his point. I see where he's coming from. I'm empathizing with both of them here so that I can come to a reasonable understanding of how to bring them back. And so then you bring the two parties back and you say, friend, uh, this one over here, uh, this is what's going on in his mind. This is why he reacted this way. And then you, you reacted this way. And you're bringing people together by having just a reasonable argument here in your mind, a reasonable defense of how things are. So when it comes to those who are opposing you on a grander scale, such as some of our political parties as they bicker back and forth over issues that, again, are worth dying on that hill for, like abortion and the LGBT stuff, how can you extend grace instead of always having a stern face? Because you have the insight of the reality of things. People, by their very nature, are enemies of God. They will not submit to him in whom they do not believe. They will not submit to his law. They are unable to do so, according to Romans 8. And so, what then do you come, what conclusion do you have? They're in darkness. They don't, they don't have that understanding of how things truly are. They don't even recognize the fact that they are under the righteous judgment of God, even in these very moments of them saying what they are. And so, what then, what then do you think? Well, my heart goes out to them in one sense because you don't even know. You don't even know your state right now. And then I think as well at times, Lord, if it hadn't have been for you delivering me from darkness, I, would, I could be right there with them. I could be right there uh, cheering alongside of them if it weren't by your grace interfering in my life, intervening in my life, and giving me eyes to see the reality of how things truly are. So when you have that in your mind and you're, you're constantly remembering this, it does indeed change your stern face to allow your face to beam because you're extending grace and mercy to those that you know are in darkness. And you could have been there as well. And at one time we all were there. If it weren't for the grace of God, we would still be there. So having the true insight into things, having true wisdom from God, knowing the interpretation of a matter, knowing the reality of how things are, does help us to, can, to keep our emotions in check, to remember the state of the wicked, and therefore that, extends, that, that helps us then to extend grace and extend mercy. And then to respond and give them the reason of the hope that is within us, as Peter says, with meekness and fear, rather than being uh, purposely uh, obnoxious, uh, just trying to hurt the other. And so having that wisdom then is what's going to guide us through the rest of what Solomon is going to speak here. But that's, that's the basis. This is... This is this is the foundation. And so as you're navigating through the things that you encounter in your own life, whether it's you know, looking at the political, political realm or you're, maybe you're, you're 
uh, having difficulties uh, at work with your employer. Maybe it's with maybe it's with friends or family of yours. And certain situations come up and conversations come up or whatever the case is. Do you stop for just that split second and pray to yourself and ask God, give me wisdom on how to properly respond to what's being said here? Let me give a real defense of the hope that is within me. Guide my thoughts. Keep me in check. By your power, keep Keep my emotions in check. That I can give a right answer. And not just seek to tear someone down. And that's part of it too, by the way. Of, uh, of giving an answer or a reasonable defense. Regardless of who the person is. You have to remember this. That every person regardless of how they identify themselves, whatever political party that they're, that they're affiliated with, regardless, they are image bearers of God. So they deserve dignity and value. So in your dialogue and in your defense and in your giving an answer for the Christian faith, the very thing that you do not do is begin to tear the person down. What are you supposed to do? You're casting down imaginations and every lofty thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You're tearing down the view. You're tearing down the, the, the philosophy or the worldview itself. That's what you're attacking. That's what you're going after. And so in your defense and in your giving an answer, we must remember this too. That's why if things do end up getting heated... That's why the scripture says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. There's some times in which you have to walk away from a conversation in order that you don't bring reproach upon Christ. Maybe sometimes that's necessary. But let's move on. Wisdom is the basis for all of this. We need wisdom. We must ask God for wisdom, pray for wisdom, seek wisdom from the scripture. Here's what he says about navigating the political world. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Now he talks about wisdom. Who is like the wise man who knows the interpretation of a matter. A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. And all of a sudden he just makes a beeline right in here to the political realm. I say, based on having this wisdom... I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. And you have two particular cautions that are given here. One is, do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not be in a hurry to abandon him. Now, for most commentators, they believe that the one that Solomon is writing to is, seems to be more of a, an advisor to the king. Uh, these are instructions uh, for the advisor who is, who is giving wisdom to the king or called to the king's side in order to, to help him in the, the matters that he faces. Keep the command of the king, one, because of the oath before God. As the advisors have come and they have pledged their allegiance to this king, what are they doing when they pledge their allegiance to a king? 
They are calling God to witness against them if they break their oath. So it's not something to take lightly. So keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Don't be in rebellion. And do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not abandon. Do not abandon the service that you are rendering. Again, um, this is a, an advisor to the king. And maybe he is serving a wicked king that seems to be in view here. That's the first caution. Don't be in a hurry to leave. In one, in one sense, in this particular day, that could be um, uh, very dangerous to do so. If you were to abandon your service to the king after you pledged your allegiance to him. And do not join in an evil matter, for he will do what he pleases. So what's he saying there? Depending on who you read, some commentators think that when he is giving this caution here, do not join in an evil matter, he is talking about rebellion. Don't join in the rebellion against the king. Or he could be referring to not joining in to the evil in which the king does. That seems to be perhaps uh, indeed what is in view here. It's easy to, when you find yourself in certain situations in which, you know, your employer, for example, uh, is promoting things that are blatantly against the law of God. It's easy to up and quit. Because that's the path of least resistance. Sometimes we're called to do that. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes the more honorable thing unto the Lord is to remain where you are at, be a, a loyal employee, and do what you can in order to guide accordingly. And the second being, do not join in the evil matter. He's going to do whatever he pleases. The king is. But don't, don't join in his evil in which he is doing. And again, this is to the advisor. The advisor is standing there in the king's court. And the king says, I'm going to do this. Perhaps a lot of the advisors would say, oh, yes, king, that's a wonderful idea. Let's do that. But the one who has the wisdom of God, who understands the reality of, of life itself and of God's creation and of God's law says, king, I cannot support you in this. And so I'm not going to participate in being a yes man and telling you that I'm supporting you. I can't do that. Now, this does bring up a few things there because we're talking about what if our employers are there? What if we're in the political realm ourselves? Can one serve a wicked king or even be an advisor to a wicked king? We would look at that and say, never. Let's take our, our uh, president now. Could you be an advisor to him? We would say, no. Even some of the more democratic ones before. We might say no. What if we were in a position in which we had to? What would we do? Well, here's a good question. What did Joseph do 
What did Daniel do? What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? And that's where we have to come back to. Is it possible to do this? And the answer is yes. Daniel was promoted and made a ruler over the whole province of Babylon and was made the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon, according to Daniel chapter 2, and this is during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. He was in the king's court. He was there when the king is making his decisions. And was, Joseph, or excuse me, was Daniel there when the king was making bad decisions, immoral decisions? Well, yes, because in chapter 2, as we're, we're finding out that he was made the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon, there in chapter 3, you have the king who makes the golden statue and says so everybody has to bow and worship. So was Daniel there when the king was making immoral decisions? Yes, he was. Was Daniel a, a, a yes man? Absolutely not. Not even to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is really a great example of what Solomon is referring to here. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 4, let me read this to you. In chapter 4, this is when Daniel is giving uh, the answer to the king. Of his, or the interpretation of his dream. And he is telling the king what the Most High is going to do to him. He's going to be driven away from mankind. His dwelling place will be among uh, the beasts of the field. He'll have grass to eat like cattle, be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you, he says, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it upon whomever he wishes. But here's what he says to the king. In verse 27 of Daniel 4, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. So here's Daniel. He's in the king's court. He's an advisor to the king. He's the chief prefect of all the wise men of Babylon. He's made ruler over the province of Babylon. And here's Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, who is making immoral decisions. And many of the wise men, no doubt, being yes men because they're afraid for their own lives. But here's Daniel giving this interpretation of his dream to him to tell him, God is going to judge you. And then he tries to advise the king rightly. Flee from your sin and do what is right. That's what Daniel is doing. Now, there's a time in which Daniel, as he is serving Darius, listen to how this... this Passage describes Daniel's conduct. Again, as we went through the book of Daniel, um, the children of Israel are in Babylon because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord. They've been deported there. They were taken out of their own land, taken to Babylon. They're there against their will, and yet 
Daniel and his companions are, by the sovereign providence of God, are working their way through the ranks of even the pagan king's court. Daniel served Nebuchadnezzar. Now he's serving Darius, the Persian king. So in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. This is the purpose, that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could not find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Is it possible to serve a wicked king and be an advisor to a wicked king while maintaining your faithfulness unto the Lord? Absolutely. Absolutely. And Daniel is our prime example of that. Daniel is, is exactly what Solomon is referring, referring to here. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? Well, men like Daniel would say to the king, what are you doing? Because they are being faithful unto the Lord, and yet they're being loyal subjects and servants and trying to guide the king and advise him accordingly. Does it always work? No, it doesn't. We'll see that here in just a moment as well. But there is these particular cautions that are there. And when you're looking at um, many of the kings throughout history, when you're looking at the Babylonian kings or the Persian kings and you're seeing how Daniel served these, uh, the particular presidents since the founding of America are nothing in comparison to the wickedness of those men. And yet God's people were faithful. He who keeps a role, command experiences no trouble for a wise heart, knows the proper time and procedure. You know how to navigate through all the things that are going on because you have the wisdom of God. And that's where the scripture tells us to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. There's a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? So look at this. No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war and evil will not deliver those who practice it. So wisdom guides its adherents to know the proper times and procedures of how to navigate through. But even at times, they're going to find themselves really having no influence over the king. Perhaps even coming into conflict. Having trouble in their own life because of the stance that they are taking. One writer says this, speaking of verses 7 and 8. The preacher reminds the royal advisor that his vocation is one that necessarily involves such conflicts, which he cannot avoid when it is troubling or even life-threatening. 
He cannot change the political winds because the king will do as he pleases. And in that, speaking of verse 8, sometimes an advisor may have little impact when it comes to the king. Because he's going to do as he pleases. Again, it's about asking God to give us wisdom on how to handle situations in such a way that God is still honored even in our, conf- in our conflicts with others, in our opposition to others. And by the way, how is it that you judge whether or not what a king is doing is just or unjust? Because you have the wisdom of God contained in the scripture. We know the law of God. We need to know the law of God if we don't know the law of God. Because it's by the law of God is this, that is the standard in which we, we say when the political party does this, well, that is blatantly immoral because God's word says this. Well, we're going to do this over here and we're going to help these folks out. Well, that's, that's good because God's word says that we ought to be doing that. We, we need to know the law of God in order to have the standard, the right standard, in order to, to, to call out what is wrong, to agree with what is right. We need to know that. So if we find ourselves in situations in which maybe our jobs are at stake, again, for others that um, are in, in politics, uh, I know some that are, what do they do? They ask God for wisdom. And they seek to honor God in everything they're doing. It's easy to throw, to, to, it's easy to sling mud at others. It's easy to speak evil of others. Those are easy things to do. It's easy to be rebellious. It's easy to abandon and leave. Because quitting is the path of least resistance. But what then is going to be more honoring to the Lord? Even for those that are blatantly wicked. Should respect be shown. Here's, a, here's a, another Daniel example then. When you have Darius, who is tricked by the other advisors in order to make a law that you can't be praying to anyone except the king, and Daniel violates it, and the, they knew that he would do so, but they already had the king's approval, and the king had already made the decree that whoever does so is to be thrown in the lion's den, right? So here you have Daniel. Thrown into the lion's den, we know the, we know the account that the Lord had shut the lion's mouth. He wasn't hurt. Darius paced all night wondering what's become of Daniel. And he goes to Daniel in the morning and he, he's, he's calling out Daniel. Are, are, basically, are you still alive? Daniel doesn't say, you idiot. How dare you, threw, how could you have thrown me in here? You knew better than this. That was dumb. No, he says, O king, live forever. The Lord has shut the lion's mouths and they have not hurt me. When you have Paul that stands before Felix and he stands before Festus, the Roman governors, how does he address them? These pagans standing before him. Most excellent Felix. Then he gives his testimony. Most excellent Festus. And he gives his testimony. There's a way in which we are to respond and to act and to speak. 
Again, it goes back to this, having the wisdom of God, that mercy is extended, grace is extended, and above all, that God is honored. And that's where we have to pray and ask God to help us with that. Because we can't do it in our own power. We definitely can't do it in our own power. So having this wisdom guides us through the political realm. But it also guides us in, in seeing the injustices uh, that are in our day, as it was in the days of Solomon. It's very interesting, the, the example that he uses here. He's, he's spoken a lot of oppression. He's spoken a lot of injustice. This is very interesting, uh, beginning of verse 10. So then I have seen the wicked buried. He's talking about a, a burial of, of a wicked man. Where's he going with that? Those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they were soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. Now he's going to go into verse 11, speaking of the evil deeds, uh, that, the implication being that these are evil deeds that these people had done, and yet they were going to the holy place. They were going there for so-called worship. They're hypocrites. People knew they were hypocrites. People knew that they were committing evil deeds. And instead of holding them accountable to the deeds that they were doing, maybe they either, one, allowed it to go on, forgot about it in the sense of just ignoring it, instead of dealing with it, because had they dealt with it quickly, then it wouldn't have moved others in order to give themselves over to evil because no actions were taken, were taken from these particular ones. You know, that is something about justice. Justice needs to be swift when people are guilty in order that it would deter others from doing the same thing. But if it lasts long and it's either ignored or it's swept under the rug and no accountability is given there, then it's just going to empower others to do evil as well. So for these particular ones, he's looking at their burial and perhaps knowing these things as Solomon is seeing this, he knows what kind of people that they were and yet... Maybe they're having an honorable funeral. People are, are honoring and praising these people. Regardless, and not, not taking into account anything that they had done. And again, he says, and they are soon forgotten. Either, be, either their deeds are soon forgotten uh, when, once they died, or they were just altogether ignored. That happens at times. Whenever you have a person who maybe they have influence, but you know what kind of person that they really are, and they die. People knew what kind of person that they, that they were, and they die, and yet they have an honorable funeral, as if they were a saint. And people act like they didn't do anything wrong. How does that happen? There's no accountability there. Or maybe there is... There are some that even through their lifetime, no one was willing to hold them accountable because of the influence that they had and just continually praised them for, who, for whatever influence that they had. Maybe they were uh, advisors to the king. Maybe they were in a political thing. Who knows? But Solomon sees this and he says that this too is futility. The only thing that this person did was to empower others to do evil, and no accountability was there. So Solomon looks at this. How do you navigate through that? How do you respond to that? What then is the proper way to react 
These particular wicked are, again, they're going to the holy place. They're participating in worship. Definitely hypocrites, just like Jesus would call out those in his own day. But here's what we have to keep in mind whenever you see this kind of injustice. The unrighteous are praised while the righteous are condemned. It goes back to what we've talked about before with like Psalm 73 of how the psalmist was envious of the wicked. Until I came into your sanctuary, then I remembered. No matter how big of an honorable funeral that people are given, no matter how much people talk at others' funerals, knowing that they're scoundrels and saying things like, you know, they're with so-and-so now, they're they're resting in peace, and and all this other language that people like to say during the time of funeral, the, the fact of the matter is this, is that if they were the wicked and they died being the wicked, they are being held to account. Even now, regardless of what people say, regardless of people trying to preach others into heaven. Because God calls them to account. And that is the reality of it. That's how, you, that's how we respond to that. We recognize it doesn't matter what you people are saying. You, you know that what you're saying is nonsense. But then you have to remember this. That person is being held to account right now. Because a just and holy God is taking them out of this world. And surely the judge of all the earth will do right. Nothing was done in this life, but God is doing right now. And that's how we respond. What does that then produce in us? Greater disdain for the people? Or does it, again, produce within us grace and mercy in the sense of it doesn't matter what you say. Because they have departed without Christ. And they're gone. So he goes on here. He talks about the seeming injustice of sinners and the righteous. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly, but it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. There is futility which is done on the earth, that is, there are are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is futility. So he's looking again at the righteous and the unrighteous. He's saying it's better, again, to speak of God openly, to be the righteous, to pursue righteousness. No matter what the evil do, they may lengthen their days, but he knows what will become of them. And so it seems as if the wicked are praised, even though it should be the righteous being praised. And then you have the righteous being condemned, though it should be the wicked being condemned. You have the, the inversion here. But it's, he's saying this is, this is futility. It's emptiness. It's vanity. But it goes back to this. It will not be well for the evil man. But he knows that it will be well for those who fear God. Regardless of what happens in this life is the idea. Regardless of how it seems as, as if the unrighteous is being praised, 
and sin is being normalized, whereas righteousness seems so strange now, it is better, he says. It will be more well for you to pursue righteousness in Christ, to, to fear him openly, not for the evil man, though. Sometimes you want to shake people and you want to say, how, how is it that you can really believe this? And how is it that you can condemn what you know to be right? But that's what's going to happen. And it shouldn't come as a surprise that that's what's going to happen. That's what's always happened. And it's going to continue to happen. Unless you're post-millennial, then you're very optimistic. Maybe one day I'm willing to change. I don't know. But what does it come down to? What is all this? What do you do with all this? And it seems very strange to see where Solomon then goes. After speaking of everything that he has thus far, he said, So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him and his tolls throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. You look at that and you... What? What does that mean? You're talking about being advisor to a wicked king. Sometimes you're going to have conflict. Sometimes your influence is never going to uh, do anything for the king. Sometimes your life is going to be threatened at times. And then you're seeing all this other stuff in the world where the righteous are being condemned. And you come back to this. Eat, drink, and be merry. How can he say that? Well, he's saying something very similar to what the other writers of Scripture are saying. Count it all joy when you endure the various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its perfect work so that you're lacking nothing. As the Apostle Paul says to the church of Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And that's not in the indicative. That's, that, that's an imperative. That's a command. This isn't just a statement of, of fact or a statement of reality to rejoice in the Lord. Paul is giving a command here. Rejoice in the Lord always again. I say rejoice. How can he say that? How can, how can he command that? Doesn't he know what life is like? Doesn't he know what kind of things are going on in our own day? And again, if you really want to see wickedness, we need to take our eyes off of this particular present age, and you need to look back in history to when this was being penned. And when the Apostle Paul was writing his letters, you talk about corruption, wickedness, your life being in danger for preaching the gospel, that's where you need to look. So yes, what Paul is saying is very applicable to us, to rejoice in the Lord always. And, and so how, does it, how do we do that? Because Solomon, as he has spoken elsewhere, as he is bringing us into this understanding to eat, drink, and be merry, and to enjoy his life and enjoy his toils throughout the days which God has given him under the sun, you enjoy the blessings that God has given you, and irrespective of what's happening, you can still have joy because you have confidence in the sovereign king 
who rules over the affairs of men. That's where it has to go back to. Lord, I see all this corruption. I see all this happening over here. And sometimes we sound very much like, like Elijah. Lord, we're the only ones left. There's nobody else here. Where are all the good ones? We say things like that a lot. But what Solomon is pointing us to is, remember this, that the sovereign king is seated. And when the sovereign king looks over the nations and the nations are trying to tear their fetters from him and cast away their cords, not wanting any authority of God to be over them, the sovereign king laughs at them. And he makes a decree that the nations will be the inheritance of his son. And he says to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And knowing that, having that wisdom to understand the reality of everything, that in itself is what gives us joy and peace. God, you're the king. You're the sovereign. You know, in the passage that we all love, Isaiah 6, when you see the Lord, the Lord Jesus high and lifted up, all that, you see him seated on his throne. But the text begins with, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. So in the time of national crisis for Israel, because their king after reigning 52 years had died, Isaiah is privileged to see the king who is seated, ruling and reigning and everything going according to plan. Our confidence in God's sovereignty and in God's power and his control over all things is what produces the joy in us. It doesn't matter what they're doing, O Lord, because you're the king. You're not just a king who is a king by right, but you are a king in actuality and that you are intimately involved in everything that is happening here. And by your sovereign hand, you're moving the king's heart like a channel of water wherever it is that you want him to go. And that gives me peace. Sometimes we have to take our eyes off the temporal and put them back on the eternal. Because when we look at the temporal, that's when we get bitter and angry and our joy is lost and we begin to despair. When you focus upon the king in all his majesty and glory, knowing that he's seated on his throne, That's what gives us peace and encouragement and great comfort. Again, as Spurgeon had said, that the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which the believer rests his head at night, having perfect peace. But that's where, that's where we need to ask those questions, though. Are you having confidence in God? Do you have confidence in the King that everything, regardless of how it seems, that everything is going according to God's eternal plan. That he works all things after the counsel of his will. Do we believe that? 
Do we trust that? And again, as Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Do you believe that? Do you have confidence in that? Then regardless of how things are in the world today, pray, ask God to give you wisdom on how to navigate through it in such a way that God is honored and pleased by your conduct and by your speech and by you upholding His, His, His word, His righteous law, even in the face of adversity. That's where we need to get to, that God would be pleased in all things, that we would have wisdom to do so and to accept and receive freely and joyfully the blessings that God has given us in the time that we are here and resting in his sovereignty. One writer says this, and we'll close. When one experiences trials of various kinds, it takes a great spiritual effort of the mind and heart to count it all joy, precisely because one's emotions say otherwise. Concern for the state of the world must be balanced with a sense of peace and confidence in the goodness and justice of God, who will set all things to rights in his own timing. That's where we rest. That's our hope. So for any of us, which is all of us, who lack wisdom, let us ask of God, who gives gen generously, that we will know how to navigate through this dark world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for your word and thank you for the wonderful encouragement that we receive as we, as we seek to apply what you, what you command of us in your word and to delight in what you command as it gives us such comfort knowing that you are the sovereign one and knowing that you give us instructions for how we may get through this life in a way that is honoring to you, in a way that we will not be overcome by evil. Thank you so much for the Spirit of God who preserves us and keeps us. We do pray for each, each one of us here, for whatever situation that we find ourselves in. We do pray for our leaders. As, as much as some are blatantly in rebellion against you, we know that you are the sovereign king, and that if you wish, and it, if it is your will, you can convert any heart. So, Father, we pray indeed that you would bring salvation uh, to those who are in great rebellion. Uh, that they may see your grace and mercy and then begin to praise you among those to whom they once rebelled against you with. Father, we know our time is short here. But thank you for the time that you've given us and all the blessings that we have received from your hand. Be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.